Everyone set up okay? This thing on? It's working good? Okay, fine. Thank you. We're ready now. Here comes our first one. Good morning, sir. I'm Bob Tyndale with Action News 8. Today our person in the street question is, who is God? Well, my dear chap, if you mean um, what is God, then uh, God is a force somewhere out there in the universe. It cannot be seen. It just exists. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate that. Good morning, sir. I'm Bob Tyndale with Action News 8. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, Today our person in the street question is, who is God? Well, that's pretty easy. Uh, God is that that feeling that you get when you uh, do good things like uh, ring the bell for the Salvation Army or fix a turkey dinner at Christmas for a homeless person. My dear boy, that's all very well, but you obviously haven't read this week's scientific paper. Excuse me, ma'am. I'm Bob Tyndale with Action News 8. Today our person in the street question is, who is God? Oh, God is everywhere. He's everything. I'm God. Your God. The tree. Just a minute. Just a minute. Hold on. Wait, no, no, no. Good morning, ma'am. I'm Bob Tyndale with Action News 8. Today our person in the street question is, who is God? Well, I believe God the God in the Bible as being the only one true God and Jesus Christ, his only son. Don't be ridiculous. Hold on. What what are you, one of those religious fundamentalists? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, hey, whoa, whoa. Slow down now. Why are you so disagreeable with this young lady? How can anyone really know who God is? You you can't describe God as a person? No one can know who God really is. We start today on a ten-year process of spiritual maturity in which every year we will be experiencing at least one aspect of your life that will change your entire life and your your entire Christian character. The first year of this, which begins today, is a year of trying to figure out what going through the first mile of Christianity is. We keep talking about the second mile of Christianity, but it's important to know what do I have to do to live out my Christian commitment enough even to get to the second mile? What are the basics that cannot be ignored? What are the distances that have to be traveled in my own journey with God before I can even begin to talk about spiritual maturity or walk in the second mile with Christ? And we start today with the most basic question of all. How do you discover the true God? That's where we begin. And like a seminary course, I want to begin by shaking your present assumptions. Because I believe that until our present assumptions are shaken, nothing new can enter in. Most people do not come fully seeking to know more about God. They come 
fully seeking to have what they already know affirmed about God. And some of that's not bad. But if we're talking about growth, let's talk about growth. Now, I'm going to do this just every once in a while with this material. I have so much material that I could not possibly get it into one message. And so, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, it's at the, it's at the end of your, uh, of your uh, sermon outline, or your lack of sermon outline, sermon questions. Um, I'm going to be teaching you about an aspect of this that I'm not going to address this morning. Much of the world, including your children, will ask sooner or later, how do you even know there's a God? My assumption is that if you're here, you are working with the prerequisite that there is a God. But if you are going to give an account for the hope that is within you in biblical terms, you need to know the reasonable arguments for the existence of God. And if you will be here Wednesday at 7 o'clock just for one-time teaching, no music, no, no nothing. I didn't organize this thing. I just said I've got to talk some more about this than, I'm, than I can on Sunday morning. I will give you what is akin to a college lecture on the five arguments for the existence of God so that you can share it with other people. And at the end of that, I will teach you how to, to um, on the spot, help people to know God personally. Uh, in other words, I will teach you how to lead them into a Christian commitment. Okay? Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, one time only because I already had an elder me- elders meeting going and it's another, another night out of the house. And so, um, and if we can, uh, I, I think if we can get a tape of it, that'll be great too, but I don't know about that. I haven't got that part organized. I'll just, and if we can get the PA turned on, I know how to turn the lights on. I don't know how to turn the PA system on. So if I can't turn the PA on, I'll just yell at you for an hour. But uh, bring a notebook, will you? Because there's going to be a lot of information that you need to record so that you can remember it. There are a lot of words that you probably will not remember unless you write them down. Today, though, um, I want to talk about removing false gods from your life. Now, would you pray with me before I even begin? God, we're at the very beginning. And before new things can be built, sometimes old things need to be destroyed. We don't like that uh, because we're comfortable where we're at. But we would ask you with your spirit right now to come and begin knocking down Uh, begin cleaning out any uh, old or decayed ideas that do not really fit you and who you are. Would you please send your Holy Spirit and mold the words that I am about to say into shapes that just fit the needs of the people who are about to hear. And please, God, if I say anything incorrect, erase it. Let it be forgotten. Use only what you can this morning so that you are the one who is glorified. You are the one who is remembered. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 20. The first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is recorded in the 20th chapter of Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol 
or any likeness of what is in heaven, or above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. That is the first commandment. I will not speak to you today as if you are believers of other major religions. I assume that you are not, although if you are, I would love to talk with you at your leisure. I will not speak with you today as if you actually build a physical idol in your life and worship it. That is not done very often anymore. But what I would like to say to all of us today, myself included, as I went through this message, I would like to share why idolatry is still alive and well in this culture. What the idolatry may be in our lives, and then why we have a lack of commitment to the true God. Number one. The reason that idolatry is still alive and well, that is, the, the Latin term is fabricum idolorum, and it means making God in your image instead of being made in God's image. The reason it's alive and well is because the appetites we have continue to mold the way that we choose to understand God. You will remember, please, in the first chapter, the first, uh, the third chapter of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, that Eve was tempted in trying to rationalize her action by looking at the apple and, the, and, and or looking at the forbidden fruit. It didn't say it was an apple, and saying to herself, "It was delight to the eyes," and she saw that it was good for food. She was thinking with her appetites rather than with her mind. Um, in the third chapter of Philippians, there is a reference to the New Testament kind of uh, idolatry. And let me just read for you verses 17 through 20. Brethren, join in following my example. Now, he's talking to Christians here. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to Christians. And he's saying this is how you can tell the difference between a real Christian... And one who is walking in um, illusion. <clears throat> Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Those, or I'm sorry, whose end is destruction. Now remember the words in the, the verse in, in uh, chapter 20 of Exodus, I will visit you. I will visit the iniquities of your wickedness on your children. He's talking about destruction here. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. And whose glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. The first rule of idolatry is giving consummate worth to that which is not worth what God is worth. It is worshiping as if it were God and attributing worth 
to that particular appetite or that particular what you believe is an answer to that appetite. Attributing worth that should only be attributed to God. It is false, in Old English, worth-ship. Shipping worth to that which is not God. How do we do that? Well, in this culture, much of it is done through our addictions. Uh, there's a gal named Melody Be Beattie, is the correct, correct, correct pronunciation of her last name. I read uh, an article in Time this week, quoted her as saying, now listen to this, that 80 million Americans, according to the most recent census, that's almost a third of our nation, is either deeply emotionally involved with an addict or addicted themselves. One-third of this nation is a slave to their own appetite, trying to get from that particular addiction or trying to manage someone who is trying to get from that particular addiction what can only be given by God. And therefore, they are practicing idolatry, not knowing that. They still believe, many of them, in the God of the Bible. They still assume that Jesus is the Son of God. But their devotion is to that which they believe will more immediately answer that appetite that they have. And their destruction is in their glory. You know, when they get a little bit of what they wanted, ah, they are in their glory. But that is really their destruction. Because it is only teaching them more in partial circumstance what only God can give them. It is teaching them a lie. It is teaching them to worship what can never improve their lives. That's one mark of a false god. A false god has absolutely no power to change your life for the better. It has a power to change your life for the worse. Everything from the other side has the power to change your life for the worse, but it does not have the power to change your life for the better. So therefore, it is important at the very beginning of this to ask ourselves the question, what is there in my life that I look to to answer my needs more than I look to God to answer my needs. Who is there in my life that I look to in a very practical way to give me what only God can give me? And that is security and purpose and guidance. Who does that more than God? And if you come up with an answer to that, and it has to be truthful, you have found an addiction. And the only way to rid yourself of that addiction, not of the person necessarily, but of the addiction, is in biblical terms to turn away, to repent, and to walk only toward God in that area of your life. Before we can ever honestly talk about the second mile, we've got to root the addictions out of the first mile. And addictions don't always have to do with booze and drugs and sex. Some are much more so socially acceptable. Work, you know, um, um, help me out here. Exercise, um, um, 
fun. I don't know. I, you know, uh, there are a lot that are more socially acceptable. But their addiction's all the same. So therefore, the first step is to say, what in my life is answering more of my needs right now than God is answering? The second step is to say, how have I pictured God in a way smaller than he is? There's a man who uh, had a, did a wonderful job translating the Bible. Phillips' translation of the Bible. His name is J.B. Phillips. And he wrote a book that is an absolute classic entitled, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. You know the reason that there are legitimate atheists in this world is not because they disbelieve in God, it's they disbelieve in a picture of God that you and I probably wouldn't believe in either. If you get someone who says, I don't believe in God, ask them this question. What kind of a God don't you believe in? And have them answer that question, and you almost invariably will be able to say at the end of that statement, if they will give it to you, I don't believe in that God either. You know why? Because people in their development get stunted in their religious conceptions as to a certain image or picture of God. Some healthier than others, none of them tremendously healthy. Because as, as long as you're only carrying one image of who God is to you around, you have not opened the aperture to where you can really receive all of who God is. Because all of those pictures are so focused, all of them have shortcomings. All of them have uh, benefits, but all of them also have shortcomings. Let me give you a few examples. Some believe that God is a policeman, basically. They would never say that, but that's what they believe. God is one who keeps the law. And as long as you walk within the moral law, then you're okay. You can be at peace with yourself. But once you get out that moral law, he's going to get you. Now, that's not a wholly unjustified picture of who God is. But can you imagine living a life where that was your only picture of God? What does someone who lives that kind of life and has that kind of assumption do... When he sees non-believers absolutely sin and he thinks, get away with it. Is God not a weak, mealy mouth, does not really keep justice in this world? What good is a lawgiver and a law keeper who can't keep the law? You see, it benefits people because they stay moral, but it does them a disservice and does God a disservice because it has in its, in its image the seeds of its own destruction. Many people, to many people, Jesus is holy Jesus, meek and mild. Remember that old hymn? Holy Jesus, meek and mild. Oh, dear. Jesus is, Jesus is biblically meek. But there is nothing mild about the biblical picture of Jesus. But for them, Jesus is a warm fuzzy. You know, he's... Feeling good because you've done a good thing and Jesus just comes up and cuddles you. And no matter what you do, Jesus just loves your little face, pinchy little face. Say, do better. Do better next time if you feel like it. Oh, good heavens. People, because they have been emotionally deprived or spoiled rotten, one of the two, 
in their lives can sometimes picture a God like that. But what do they do when they come face to face with the consequences of their own sin? And all the cuddling in the world can't make it better. What do they do when they read the scripture that says, what you reap, you're going to sow? See? Whatever happened to the, oh, well, I, I reap, you know, or I'm sorry, what you sow, you're going to reap. You know, well, I sowed this, but oh, golly, I'm, I'm hoping to reap good stuff, stuff that will make me feel good. There's another one. Superman. God is super rescuer. And, and he's kind of like the guy who, when it gets the worst, you know, God's going to come swooping down. Remember those old Superman things? I never do know why they cast that guy as Clark Kenny out of pot belly. And it didn't even look good in tights, you know. But every time, every time things got real bad, he was there and he'd stop it just in the nick of time. And so many picture, people picture God as the Superman who will rescue me out of all my distress. However... God did not come so that we wouldn't need to grow up and do our own disciplining and work. God did not come so that we could be relieved of growing up. And we could be relieved of being taught the lessons of our own shortcomings and sins. Therefore, there are at least as many times in our lives when God, for our sake, will not rescue us. Because we simply need to be taught the lesson so that it will not happen again. Some of God's... There's, an old, there's a country song out uh, that uh, some of God's... Let me see. And sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy, who, uh, he's looking at his old high school sweetheart and, and remembers how many times uh, uh, he um, um, prayed that they would get married you know, and then he meets her like 20 years later, looks at her, looks at his, at his wife and breaks into this song. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. You know? It's the, it's the God who won't rescue us for our own good. Because sometimes we're so immature we don't even know how to pray. And it takes getting through a tough situation before we will ever Grow up enough so that we will know how to pray. And then there's, of course, there's the God of disappointment. There are people who don't believe in God, not because they can't intellectually stomach it. And as a matter of fact, most of the time, the reason won't, people won't believe in God is because they've been terribly disappointed. And they don't want to exercise that risk of faith. And faith is always a risk. Because they, at some time in their life, have said, God, if you're real, do this. See? And God didn't do it. God was saying, homie, don't play that. You know? God was saying, God was saying, now look, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't use that phrase because that's a, that's a, not a good show, but, but he was saying, wait a minute, you've got the tables turned. You don't test me. I test you. I am not your servant. You're my servant. And so let's not begin this whole thing. Now there are sometimes, for particular needs, for particular people, when God has said, okay, and he's let that happen. Because he knew that what was needed, what was needed in that spot. But there are other times when God has purely said, no, 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 no. If we start this game, and you have to believe in me on the basis of every time I've come through for you, 
then your faith is a weak faith indeed. Anyhow, the whole picture of this, you understand, is that we have these little bitty focuses of who we believe God is. And God is so much bigger than that. Now, let me ask you this question. If you believe in the God of nurturing, cuddly, warm, fuzzy, are you willing to give up being totally focused on that aspect of God and go into another field where he may say to you, look, I've got a hard truth to teach you. And there's nothing warm and fuzzy and cuddly about it. It's just something you need to know. If you are a person who has a God who is really a critical parent, who everything you do, you can't feel good about. You, there's never a sense of freedom. And the payoff, of course, to that is you never have to take the responsibility to be free. You can always be oppressed all your life. You know, you can always be a victim. There's a lot of payoffs of being a victim. If you have that kind of God, are you willing to stand up and say, No, God, I don't believe you want me to be a victim. I believe you want me to grow up and be responsible. I believe that you want me to be free. And so, therefore... I am going to walk in the freedom of Christ. That's a scary thing, you know that? From all the messages you've, you may have had about God, that's a very scary thing. But before we can ever get to the second mile, we have to give up our little pet images of God. We have to say, God, I don't know all of who you are, but I want to learn all of who you are. And I don't have um, the whole picture. Break down, take away from me whatever is false, and build in me whatever is new. Are you willing to do that? Because unless you're willing to do that, unless you're willing to say, there's a lot I need to learn yet, you never get through the first mile. Now let me tell you why, why people have a lot of trouble with devotion to Christ. is because their picture of God is way too small. And we never want to be devoted to anything that's smaller than our mind is. It'll just never happen. Just never happen. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher, Danish theologian. A couple hundred years ago, he's a brilliant man. And he said, you know, there are three stages to Christian development. One is the ascetic stage, where people build up wonderful theologies. And even when those theologies are correct, they are just matters of symmetry and beauty to add to someone's life. The second stage is the ethical stage where they say, no, I really do want to get involved. I want to give myself to doing what God wants me to do. And the third stage comes when they learn they can't do what God wants them to do. They have no power within themselves. And it is a radical surrender to a passionate plea to God to come in and do whatever he wants to because there's no power left. Most people stick in that first stage because the other two are so scary. He, he gives a little story. He was a good storyteller. And he said once one time there was a duck church. And they, all, these, all, these, all these ducks waddled to church and they all sat real good. And the, and the preacher duck got up and preached to him a great message about having wings and about how God wanted them to be able to fly 
And that's why he gave them wings. He wanted them to be free and experience the exhilarating risk of flight. And all of them, to the very last duck, shouted, Amen! Hallelujah! And waddled home. Now look, we're not far away. We're not far away. Because when we waddle out of here, many, many times we are not much different than when we waddled in. We aren't. Are you willing to risk having your personal relationship with God radically changed? That's the first requirement of maturity. Admitting that no matter how good it is right now, it can be radically better. Are you willing? Are you willing to learn along the way you have been wrong about God? What you believed was wrong about God. What you were taught was wrong about God. But now that you have found something different in the Word of God, you are willing to grow in that direction. In Acts 17, let me just read you this and then I'll, then I'll pray and we can have communion together. Acts 17, Paul is in the midst of, of a group of religious people. Paul stood in the midst of Aeropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Now listen to me. Here Paul was in the midst of a people. Everyone had their little idol. But he found one idol that was really the central entry point of the God of the universe. And that one idol was the idol that would admit we don't really know God like we should. And that's the one idol he spoke to. He said, I ex we've examined all of your other idols. But I want to explain to you about this idol. I want to put the answer of the God of the universe into that peace which you will readily admit I do not yet know. And that's what he did. Would you reveal this morning to God? There are lots of things I want to learn. There are lots of things I don't know. Teach me. I am open. And I will even give up to you my addictions. I will even give up to you my small thinking. I will even give up to you my distance because I have 
intentionally made you too small for me to be devoted to. Will you pray with me? God, as we come to this, your table, trusting not in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies, we know your character. Your character is on this table. It is one of personal self-sacrifice for our sakes. And as we take this communion, help us to ingest that character of Jesus where we can personally sacrifice to you who we are so that you can build in us who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.